This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hi, uh, thank you so much for joining this webinar about the environment and Parkinson's disease. Uh, I'm Ted Thompson, Senior Vice President of Public Policy from the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and um, I will be the moderator for today's webinar. Um, today we're gonna discuss how environmental factors such as pesticide and toxicant exposure, uh, as well as head injury may lead to Parkinson's. We'll also cover policies and legislation that might uh, help limit those exposures and protect people from uh, the disease. We've got a lot to discuss today, so we'll get started. Uh, I'm gonna start with uh, introductions of our panelists. Today, we've got Kevin Kwok, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2009. He spent his college summers hauling toxic waste drums at a well-known chemical company, and now he's an advocate for Parkinson's uh, supportive research and public policies. Thank you for being here, Kevin. Great uh, to be next here. We have, next, we have Dr. Timothy Greenmeyer, who is a professor of neurology and chief of the Movement Disorders Division at the University of Pittsburgh. He is a leading researcher into the biological connection between environmental influences and Parkinson's disease. So happy you're with us, uh, Dr. Greenemeyer. Likewise. And we also have Dr. Sarisha Nandipati, who is a movement disorder specialist at Kaiser Permanente uh, San Rafael Medical Center in the San Francisco Bay Area. She has studied the associations between toxicant exposure and Parkinson's disease. Hello, Dr. Nandipati. Hi, good morning from the West Coast. Uh, and, and finally, uh, my colleague, Dr. Jamie Eberling. She is a vice president of research programs here at the foundation, and she's directing a funding program looking deeper into environmental risk factors for Parkinson's disease. Uh, thanks for helping us out today, Jamie. Thanks, Ted. It's a pleasure. All right. So we're going to um, start walking through the, the presentation. Um, one question that comes up, uh, well, probably always, is um, what caused my Parkinson's and did something trigger it. Uh, most of the time, doctors can't say exactly why someone got Parkinson's. Um, we believe that a lot of the cases are a combination of environment uh, and genetics, uh, where something in the environment uh, triggers it. Um, it's also been established that not everyone exposed to the same, to the same toxicants will end up getting Parkinson's, uh, nor everyone with a known genetic link will be diagnosed with Parkinson's. But we still have a lot to learn about genetics um, and the environmental influences and the relationships. Kevin, uh, maybe I'll start with you because uh, of your uh, college exposure. Um, when did you, you know, first think that that was a connection, or was it your doctor that identified it, or your independent research? It was really more independent research. You know, back in the 80s, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, I had a great summer job, great in the sense that it paid really well, um, but I paid a price, I think, because the job entailed almost a hazing of the college students where we were asked to take on all the dirty jobs, right? And the dirty jobs were, were everything from hauling 55-gallon drums of, of agents that were precursors to Agent Orange. Uh, and other pesticides, 
<clears throat> and I remember just sort of at the time, sort of, you know, washing out various chemical reactors and being almost bathed in some of this chemical waste, thinking this probably is not a good idea. And years later, you know, I attended a graduate school class uh, at, at Chan Zuckerberg, and the, and the presenter had just published a paper on the um, use of of the agent chlorpyrifos uh, as a um, as a World War II nerve uh, nerve agent, and now it was being used as a pesticide. And I was starting to think. Well, I wonder if that was what caused my Parkinson's. And lately, we've been seeing a lot more publication about that. So it's been uh, self-learning to get to this point. Tim, uh, why don't you uh, weigh in with what you've learned through the years? Sure. Uh, when I was in medical school, we had no idea what caused Parkinson's. But the one thing that we were sure of at that time was that genes played no role. There was no genetic uh, predisposition to Parkinson's, and of course, we all know that that's been flipped on its head now, and, and genes are very important in causing Parkinson's. But together, all the genes that we've defined so far that can cause Parkinson's disease probably only account for 10 to 15 percent of cases. And the rest is thought to be some combination of um, your genetic makeup and environmental exposures. I first got into uh, looking at environmental causes of Parkinson's disease uh, sort of accidentally when I was uh, using a tool compound called rotenone. Some of you may recognize rotenone as a, uh, an insecticide that used to be used in uh, vegetable gardens. I, I myself used to spray it on my tomatoes uh, uh, when I was growing tomatoes in the yard. Um, it was a tool compound that we gave to uh, rats. Uh, for a different reason, for a, a specific biochemical property that rotenone has, but it was also of interest that um, it was a pesticide because by the time I was starting my experiments, pesticides had been linked in epidemiologic studies to uh, the risk of Parkinson's, um, but we didn't know specific chemical uh, uh, entities that that caused uh, or were associated with Parkinson's at that time. So we gave uh, rotenone to rats, and sure enough, it uh, caused uh, a Parkinson's-like clinical syndrome where the rats became slow and stiff. Uh, but they also developed the, the neuropathology, the Lewy bodies, and the degeneration of the dopamine neurons that occurs in Parkinson's disease. Uh, so it was a very exciting finding that this this biochemical uh, that we uh, were interested in, which was also a pesticide, could cause Parkinson's disease. And, and uh, my research has, has focused on those kinds of things uh, ever since. Thank you, um, uh, Tim. That's really helpful. Um, we've been talking um, uh, about pesticides. Uh, herbicides, obviously, is a, a slightly different. Um, and Paraquat is the herbicide that we've been focused on most closely uh, at the Fox Foundation in recent years. Um, and we'll talk more about this later, but we actually have legislation that's been introduced that would do um, ban Paraquat among many other um, chemicals that are currently used in the United States. Um, Sarishi, uh, why don't you uh, maybe expand on um, 
the toxicants, uh, pesticides, and solvent, uh, I'm sorry, uh, solvents and other toxicants that you've studied? Um, absolutely. So my experience comes from writing a comprehensive review article on basically all of the epidemiologic studies we have um, in human research um, with toxicants associated with Parkinson's disease. And um, Paraquat is absolutely one of those uh, pesticides that um, has a very strong association with Parkinson's and now is limited to only professional use in the United States, but has been banned in many other countries. So I think it's really forward-thinking and important that the Michael J. Fox Foundation is advocating um, more regulation and limitation of the use of this uh, compound. Um, and then there are other types of uh, compounds as well, organophosphates, which are another form of pesticides that unfortunately have been in household compounds as well, organochlorines, um, certain metals like manganese, which is an exposure that can happen in certain types of factories or industries, um, and then PCBs, which are fatty soluble compounds that are no longer in industrial use, but are still very residual and long lasting in fatty fish. So I think a big takeaway I have from my reading and research about this is that these effects are very long lasting. You know, a person can get exposed early in life and have continued effects years and years after the fact. And then also these compounds can last in the environment for a very long time and still pose continued risk. So constant reevaluation of the compounds that we're using and knowledge about the longstanding effects I think is going to be a constant process. So it's great to have some advocacy on this topic to have our safety committees really reevaluating compounds, not just when they're released for use, but years after they're released to reevaluate safety. Oh, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to um, uh, reiterate what Dr. Nandipati said, uh, that uh, it's, it's really important that um, exposure, you know, you might think that uh, when you get exposed, you would show symptoms uh, at the same time. But it turns out that a lot of the uh, development of symptoms uh, occurs uh, a long, long period after uh, the exposure uh, was taking place. So there's this latent period um, that um, uh, is up, in some cases up to decades long. And uh, we've, we, using rotenone, we've reproduced that, that kind of effect where you treat the animals uh, and then wait a period of months and then the animals start slowly developing uh, Parkinson's-like symptoms and pathology. So uh, it's, it's not easy necessarily to uh, look at these toxic, toxicities uh, in real time, but they, they occur uh, with a delayed uh, response. So we do know that um, uh, certain, uh, from population studies, people in certain uh, fields, uh, like farmers or metal workers, uh, are uh, at higher risk with greater exposure. Um, and so what you were just talking about in terms of uh, it sometimes takes years and years before the disease uh, symptoms start to show. Um, and so this is one of the areas that we've identified where it, it wouldn't help people with Parkinson's today, but if we could ban these substances, substances, then the triggering effect of these chemicals won't happen. And in that way, we could prevent Parkinson's. That's one of the goals behind uh, our work um, in this area. And some of the people on the call on the webinar may not know, but uh, several years ago, we did a change.org petition that got over, I think, over 107,000 signatures. 
calling on the EPA to uh, ban Paraquat. We also submitted our own comments uh, with detailed uh, information, peer-reviewed studies um, to back up uh, what we were asking for, and I believe we submitted follow-on uh, comments as well because of new studies. So we're doing everything we possibly can to get it banned. Um, we don't believe it will get banned uh, uh, under this administration because uh, Thailand recently banned Paraquat and the U.S. government has asked them to either loosen or overturn that ban. Um, so we've, we've got a lot of work to do in this area. Um, in terms of uh, how these chemicals and toxicants can uh, cause the disease, um, scientists are learning more and more about that around inflammation, uh, cell, cellular stress, uh, modifications to gut bacteria uh, balance. Um, uh, Dr. Nanapati, do you want to comment on some of these uh, aspects of Parkinson's? Yeah, definitely. So we know that the core injury that causes Parkinson's disease, while it's very complicated, is the death of key brain cells, um, dopamine-producing cells in the brain. And when scientists like Dr. Greenmare look at animal tissue under the microscope, as well as post-mortem studies in humans, we can see that those dopamine-producing cells um, have been injured in multiple ways. So inflammation, oxidative stress, um, decreased ability to utilize and produce energy in those cells. And um, I don't have as much knowledge about the gut bacteria balance, but I'm definitely curious um, what Tim has to say about that. And then um, paraquat particularly has been um, seen to lead to more buildup of alpha-synuclein, which is a toxic protein that can cause dopamine cell death. So it's not just one cascade of events that these pesticides can cause. They really can injure the cells in multiple ways, so through all four um, vulnerabilities, inflammation, cellular stress, the gut balance and building up those toxic proteins. Uh, Tim, did you want to jump in here as well? Sure. I think, I think there are common mechanisms uh, that are all interrelated. Uh, so uh, I think oxidative stress is central to uh, most forms of Parkinson's disease, oxidative stress, uh, which you can think of uh, as rust, um, rust on the cells and that eventually leads to uh, breakdown of the, the cells um, is very important in the disease and uh, it's something that paraquat and rotenone uh, both have in common is that they cause oxidative stress. They both also um, increase the uh, amount and the um, toxicity of this alpha-synuclein pro protein that uh, Dr. Nandapati mentioned. Alpha-synuclein is the main uh, ingredient in Lewy bodies, and many of you have heard of Lewy bodies uh, in, in Parkinson's disease and a closely related uh, disease called uh, Lewy body dementia. Um, these these uh, mechanisms all uh, flow into each other, and when you start with uh, one, you end up with the others, uh, so they, they're hard to separate. The, the gut bacteria is very interesting. There's thoughts now that uh, in at least some cases, Parkinson's disease may begin in the gut. Um, and there's evidence that uh, the, the nerve cells that uh, control your, um, the movement of your, your gut um, to propel the, the uh, food and waste uh, through your, your GI system 
uh, are affected by synuclein and oxidative stress early on. Uh, and uh, the, the gut bacteria uh, in, uh, in the uh, GI system um, change uh, with PD and may predispose to, to synuclein uh, accumulation. And then what can happen is the synuclein can actually travel from one nerve cell to the next in a chain all the way up to the base of the brain and further into the brain. Um, and uh, you have this uh, transmission of, of pathology from one cell to the next, um, sort of infecting the next cell and damaging it until uh, you get to the dopamine neurons that cause the motor symptoms and you get a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. A couple of the questions that are coming in, um, I, I want to draw Kevin in on um, and then get some other input. But uh, the questions around uh, is it childhood exposure um, that is most important or uh, how long-term the exposure has to be? Uh, Kevin, uh, with your situation, how many years were you, roughly what age were you and how many years were you exposed to these chemicals? Uh, I was exposed in my summer job in my early 20s, so I would say it was a good 20 plus years to actually see the effects. So quite a long time, and that is really disturbing to me, that with the reversal of some of these being reused, re uh, you know, in certain countries that we are, are going backwards and not forwards as far as our ability to manage the disease. I've always felt that, you know, while we, you know, I, I later went on in my career to join the pharmaceutical industry, and I know how long it takes to make drugs. And so in my belief is that if we can prevent a disease, it's as good as a cure, right? And so people ask me why I've gotten so, you know, on a soapbox when it comes to these environmental toxins that I say, you know, my view is if I, if I can prevent, you know, just one more case of Parkinson's or prevent Parkinson's in my kids, that in my, in my mind is a cure. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Uh, I think that's the sentiment of most, most people probably share. Um, and given that there are elements here that are within the um, you know, the control of the human beings, as opposed to, you know, um, genetics that you're born with and things like that, it's really important that we keep, keep working on this. A question came in about the legislation that we're uh, supporting um, and our success to date. Um, to date, there's, no success because the bill just got introduced a couple of weeks ago. Um, but it, it is a pretty, well, I, I'd say it's a very significant piece of environmental legislation because not only does it specifically um, outright ban Paraquat and about 20 or 30 other chemicals, it has a provision that um, requires the EPA to re-review uh, chemicals that are used in the United States but banned in the European Union, for example. So it could uh, really set in motion a broad and sweeping uh, review of the chemicals used um, on our food supply and in our environment. Um, one of the question, other questions that came in is whether the food supply is um, uh, putting us at risk of getting Parkinson's. And what my understanding or what we've 
understood is that it doesn't impact the foods, the food that it is um, controlling the weeds. But I'm going to ask uh, Tim, Tim to uh, jump in on that question. Yeah, I, I think that uh, for the most part, uh, it's it's the people who use pa um, paraquat that are exposed to it the most, uh, which is not to say that it doesn't get on food to some extent, uh, but the, the risk that's been documented, as far as I know, is people who um, use and apply paraquat. Um, but there is emerging evidence that paraquat doesn't necessarily stay where it's applied. You know, it can, it can move with rain and with wind. Um, and uh, the role that that plays is is, um, is just coming to light now. Um, you know, one of the things that I find uh, interesting and ironic is that paraquat is made manufactured by a company uh, in the UK where paraquat is is actually banned. So the, it's it's manufactured in a country where you can't use it. Uh, but they export it around uh, the world, particularly the United States. Yeah, yeah. When we've met with lawmakers and pointed out that uh, it's banned in the European Union, uh, it's banned in 32 countries around the world, including China, um, lawmakers are pretty shocked by that, that uh, China would have banned something that we have not um, at this point. So, um, uh, Jamie, I'm going to bring you in here um, because we are funding some environmental-related uh, um proposals, grant proposals. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that, um, what some of the topics are and what you're hoping to find? Yeah, thanks, Ted. Um, at this point, we don't know what the topics are. This is a, a brand new funding program. So um, we're just getting ready to review the application. But um, the title of the program is Investigating Environmental Factors That Increase the Risk for Parkinson's Disease. So this is a funding program with the goal of funding research projects that investigate environmental exposures, such as those we're, that we're discussing today, um, that increase the risk of Parkinson's disease and or influence disease progression. And um, the, the projects will utilize existing data sets um, and analyze those data sets. So they won't be collecting new data, they'll be using existing data to try to understand links between specific exposures and risk of Parkinson's disease. Um, and we believe that a better understanding of such, such factors could lead to efforts to prevent such exposures and could ultimately affect policy. So this is a, a new type of program for us, but we're really excited. Um, and as I mentioned, we'll be reviewing the application in just the next couple months. And the funding for the projects will start in early 2021. So stay tuned for more information early next year. Um, and hopefully those projects will lead to important information about how these different types of exposures ultimately impact risk for the disease. Go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, I actually have a question for Jamie. So it sounds like the research is funding almost observational data sets, correct? And That's right. So uh, back in February, it's my understanding that the EPA actually had a move to try to um, not ban, but, but discredit studies that, that would not actually disclose by name or some of the details 
of individual participants. And so there's sort of this policy uh, of practice that the EPA is going through that may actually conflict with, with, with the program that you're running. That might be a question for you, Ted. Yeah, yeah, I can touch on that. Um, and it, it probably it wouldn't impact the program that Jamie's running, I don't think, because we are funding um, this research ourselves. It's not government funded. Um, but what you're referring to is the so-called transparency rule. Uh, we have been uh, among, the lead, among the leaders in fighting that. Um, we put a coalition together. I think we have uh, 70 or 80 different uh, organizations, um, not all, um, yeah, uh, I mean, from across the board, environmental organizations, um, uh, you know, Lung Association, a bunch of others. But so we've been leading the fight um, to the point that we also, uh, last year, our CEO, Todd Shearer, testified before a congressional committee opposing this rule. Um, the EPA was there. They said that they take everything into consideration um, before they issued the uh, final rule. Um, and the rule they issued was actually worse than the one that they had proposed. So we've got a lot of work to do uh, in the, yeah, in this area. Um, I want to touch on one thing that Jamie mentioned, uh, the policy implications. Um, as you all know, we are a science-based organization. Um, we, we go to where the research leads us. And so through these studies, uh, depending on what comes of them, uh, it could really enable us to, from the policy perspective to have a much deeper um, understanding that will help us advocate uh, before Congress um, on these issues. Um, Congress, uh, you know, they, they do care about facts um, and the more data that we can uh, produce to um, prove our point, uh, the better. Uh, so we're, I think we're all excited that we are um, digging into the environmental aspects more at the foundation. Um, one of the other policy-related things that um, we are doing is uh, starting to engage uh, one of the other institutes at the National Institutes of Health. There's an institute focused on environmental health, and so we've been engaging with them uh, through the years. They fund about $15 million a year of Parkinson's research, um, which isn't a whole lot, uh, but we are starting to brainstorm how we could uh, maybe try to figure out a plan to get them to juice up their investment in Parkinson's research, because as you can tell from this conversation, there's a great deal of, um, uh, there are a great deal of targets for uh, environmental triggers that we can um, you know, be going after. enjoying this podcast, share it with a friend or rate and review it on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. MichaelJFox.org. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the podcast. In terms of what people can do today, um, I'm sure that's on everybody's mind because uh, just talking about it isn't going to solve anything. Um, what can we do to um, possibly have an impact? So obviously limiting exposure to any of these dangerous chemicals is a you know, significant thing to do. Um, there's evidence that exercise may protect cells and slow progression. 
Um, I know that a lot of people are involved in different forms of exercise, uh, you know, boxing, re you know, regular exercise, uh, walking. Uh, that all makes a difference. Um, so, so exercise is obviously important. Uh, another thing, uh, more tangible possibly, is to enroll in studies to better understand the connections um, to the disease and to test new treatments. And on the slide here, we've got two of our um, uh, websites, Fox Trial Finder and Fox Insights. Um, I'm going to ask Jamie to jump in here again to tell us a little more specifically what these two websites are for. Sure. So Fox Trial Finder is sort of like a match.com for um, participants in research and studies that they qualify for. So you can um, go on there and, and find different types of clinical trials that are taking place across the country and find trials that are of interest to you and ultimately connect with the trial teams and possibly be enrolled in one of the trials. So that's a great resource. Fox Inside is a little different. That's actually a clinical study, but it's an online clinical study. So you can actually enroll in a clinical study without actually having to leave um, your house or apartment or wherever you may live. Um, so everything's done online. And this is a way for, um, for us to collect a lot of data on a lot of people um, in a very easy way. So um, the real um, value in this study is that um, we can get data on very many people easily. Um, clinical trials, you get much deeper data, so much more detailed data about subjects. But, you know, there's a lot of effort involved. So um, we've already learned a lot from Fox Insight, and companies are very interested in that data and use it to help guide their programs. So um, both of these are, are definitely worth looking into if you're, if you're interested in enrolling in a trial where you actually have to go in order to participate. Fox Trial Finder is where you can find those types of trials. And then Fox Insight, you can just go on and enroll and become part of this virtual study. Thank you. Um, I, I'm going to put you on the spot to talk about one other program um, here at the foundation because um, we, uh, I said we, you know, follow the science. Um, but one of the things that we do that may not be completely unique, but it's uh, pretty unusual, is um, our open data policy um, through PPMI. Uh, uh, Maybe you could touch on PPMI, what that is um, uh, focused on, and then uh, if you recall how many downloads um, that data has had, because that's a significant number. Yeah, I don't recall how many downloads. I just know that it's a huge number. Um, so PPMI, as many of you out there probably know, is sort of the um, flagship study for the foundation. This is a large observational study, so it's a study that um, collects data on people, but it, there's no intervention. So this isn't a therapeutic study, but it's a study that um, collects a lot of data on people in order to understand um, how their disease affects them and how it changes over time and what we can measure that um, helps us to predict how those, wh what changes over time. Um, so these are biomarkers that we're collecting, um, things that you can measure in the blood, in the cerebral spinal fluid, um, imaging scans, things like that um, to understand 
how the disease progresses, progresses over time in, in different individuals. And um, the study's been going on since 2010. We're just getting ready to expand on what we've already done um, and expand by um, looking earlier in the disease and adding a lot more people to the study. So, um, and the data, all of the data that is collected through PPMI is made available through a website. So um, anybody who's interested, researchers can, can sign up and download the data and analyze it in any way that they want. And um, again, this has been um, extremely valuable, valuable for companies um, that are developing treatments for Parkinson's disease because they get a lot of information about what Parkinson's disease looks like across a large group of people and how it changes over time. Thank you. Um, and I did find out the number, um, and it's an amazing number. This data has been downloaded over 6 million times. Um, that tells you how much interest there is in this program and the data that's been collected um, and uh, could, uh, uh, I mean, and the amount of times that it's been downloaded shows the interest in um, uh, Parkinson's disease research overall. Oh, this is a patient comment. Um, I, I'm actually a patient advisor to both PPMI and Fox Insights. And I can tell you as a patient, uh, I am so excited about the commitment that the Fox Foundation has in backing these, um, the, the, these studies. They, 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 will, they, they have the potential to be the Framingham of neurology in my mind, and and just like we learned so much about today, you know, the, what we know in cardiovascular disease, um, the pairing of Fox Insights uh, and PPMI will dwarf that information in neurology. So it's very, very exciting that, that and I've had a chance to go to the investigator meeting, you know, year after year, and and just to see the excitement around it and the sharing is is really pretty amazing. Thank you, Kevin. Um, appreciate that um, uh, endorsement from your perspective because it is really a critically important um, project, um, as are all the research um, uh, the research that we fund here. Um, there are uh, there's going to be a robust Q and A session uh, when I turn it over to Jamie. Um, we've got a lot of questions, good questions. Um, but before we do, I want to touch base on uh, what can be done to advocate for protections. Um, scientists are working toward cures. Uh, government action can help uh, prevent certain diseases. And in this case, if the government would ban um, Paraquat and, uh, and actually fund a lot more environmental research um, into the environmental causes of diseases, including Parkinson's, that could do a great deal. So things that, that you can do from home uh, is to support this bill to ban the pesticide Paraquat. You can do that. Uh, we have an action alert on our website. It is um, in the resource um, book as well. So that's um, a really important step you can take. Uh, and when you do the action alert, if you can personalize your message, that makes a huge difference because Congress actually has like some algorithm that pulls out the alerts that are not just cookie cutters uh, or duplicates. If you've added a little personal story, it's more likely to get um, uh, attention. The other, uh, another policy area that I wanna talk about um, 
is the surveillance programs to track disease. That can truly inform policy decisions and resource allocation. Um, uh, I'm going to bring Sarish in here in, in just a minute, but uh, what we've done from a policy standpoint is uh, several years ago, um, after a 10-year effort, we got a national neurological conditions surveillance system enacted, and that is at the Centers for Disease Control, uh, and they've been working since 2018 on a pilot program for Parkinson's and MS to uh, basically create a proof of concept that they can collect this data. Uh, another data collection effort that we're heavily involved in is the California Parkinson's Disease Registry. That has been up and running uh, for three years now um, due to the coronavirus and all the huge uh, challenges caused by, uh, you know, the stress on state uh, uh, budgets. Uh, we're getting a little bit more involved uh, in funding it, actually, because we want to make sure that data continues to be collected. California is important uh, for a lot of reasons. It's the biggest state uh, population-wise. It's a very diverse state uh, in many ways, uh, racial, ethnic, geographic, et cetera. Um, one other, another component, though, that we are excited about is since the 1970s, they have had a pesticide re registry. So the hope is that once the data that has been collected in the Parkinson's disease registry is able to be looked at, that researchers will also want to um, overlay it with the pesticide registry. California has uh, a certain area that is colloquially known as Parkinson's Alley because the prevalence um, of Parkinson's is significantly higher in uh, this the Central Valley area than other parts of the state. Um, Dr. Nandapati, uh, why don't you touch base on why these types of surveillance and data collection efforts are important? Um, absolutely. Um, so I'm so proud that um, Dr. Tanner, um, one of my colleagues here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, really spearheaded this effort to create a California Parkinson's disease registry. And why this is so important is that you know, patients and researchers don't have to have patients self-report their exposures, um, which is kind of one of the Achilles heel of a lot of the research that's already been done. Um, you know, self-report is flawed, people's recall is flawed. So we really need objective data on where people are getting Parkinson's disease. And um, that can help us draw conclusions about regions that are more exposed to pesticides, what pesticides they're exposed to and how that may correlate or even cause Parkinson's disease. And it's especially important in California because we are kind of the agricultural center of the country, if not the world. Um, the Central Valley, unfortunately, is known as a high area of pesticide use and Parkinson's prevalence. And a lot of the seminal studies linking toxicants to Parkinson's disease are based in California, um, linking farming, uh, well water use, and rural living to a higher incidence of Parkinson's. Um, so this doesn't require any effort from patients. Um, it's the hospital centers and the providers who um, submit this data of every Parkinson's diagnosis to the California Department of Health. And we're hoping that this will catch up our research of Parkinson's disease to other kind of major registries such as cancer um, that has already been doing this, tracking the incidence of cancer in different states. So I think this is a huge step forward in um, you know, revolutionary, revolutionizing our understanding of these toxicants and the link to Parkinson's. 
Thank you so much. Um, I failed to mention uh, one other reason the California registry is so important. Um, and I should mention that there is a registry also in Nebraska and Utah. Um, one of the reasons so it's so important is the data collected can feed into that national neurological uh, condition surveillance system that I mentioned. So um, it, it will supplement and actually greatly increase the amount of data in that national surveillance system that wouldn't be in there, uh, but for these three states uh, that have mandatory registries or mandatory reporting. Um, and there is interest in other states. We have an advocate from uh, Ohio, Ron Moore, who uh, is friends with his state senator. Uh, the state senator has a new connection to Parkinson's, and we are working with him to craft a bill to create a registry in Ohio. Uh, there's interest in several other states where people have done some legwork with legislators um, or our former legislators themselves. So there are going to be some additional opportunities in some, uh, some other states um, to uh, try and get some registries. So we'll keep you posted on that um, uh, as we go. With that, though, I do need to sign off, unfortunately. So I'm going to turn the moderating over to Jamie. Um, and again, there are a lot of great questions. I want to thank everybody who's joined uh, this. We're excited to, you know, dig deeper into the environmental aspects, both from a research perspective and a public policy perspective. So thanks so much for joining. Great. Thanks, Ted. Um, so I'm just going to follow up on that last question um, with regard to the registries. I, I think this is a, um, relevant. Uh, we've got a lot of questions about exposures to various different types of potential toxins, um, including Roundup, well water, Agent Orange, even burn pits in war areas, and questions about can these um, lead to Parkinson's disease. So um, we can use registries and this surveillance system to try to um, track exposures and potential um, relevance to disease. But what does it really take in order to, to establish that link? To, um, to, is there a way that we can know for sure? And maybe, Tim, I'll start with you, and then, Teresa, if you want to weigh in as well. Well, I think the, um, the evidence for any individual uh, chemical or agent um, varies according to the, the studies that have been done. So the way I look at it is the, the strongest evidence exists for Paraquat, where there's lots of epidemiologic studies that suggest uh, that Paraquat exposure, typically occupational exposures, you're a farmer who uses the paraquat or you apply the paraquat uh, yourself as your job, um, have a higher risk. The studies haven't been uniformly positive, but I think uh, the bulk of evidence suggests that they are. But that has to be combined with uh, knowing the, the biological um, mechanism and what it does in animals. So. There's, at last count, uh, more than 40 studies in mice and rats that show that if you uh, uh, administer uh, Paraquat chronically, you get very selective degeneration of the same nerve cells that die in Parkinson's disease. You also get the uh, accumulation of synuclein, the, the protein that forms Lewy bodies. You get inflammation, uh, you get oxidative stress, and so on. So there's there's a biological mechanism and there's human data that suggests that in real world exposures, you have an increased risk. 
so I think that those things combined uh, help us to determine uh, the, the risk of any individual uh, compound or mix of compounds. Um, as I said, I think this evidence is strongest for paraquat, uh, but it's emerging for other um, um, entities. There's, there's a solvent called trichloroethylene uh, that's used uh, to uh, degrease machine parts. Um, it's used in, in a variety of industrial uh, processes. Um, closely related is a, a, another chemical um, that's dry cleaning fluid. Um, so I think there are a lot of uh, potential uh, chemicals that can um, increase your risk of Parkinson's disease or cause Parkinson's disease. Um, and I think we're sort of at the tip of the iceberg uh, in identifying these mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with Tim that it's both the human epidemiologic studies and then the studies in the lab using um, either um, in vitro or in vivo, um, you know, test tube versus um, actual brain tissue to see if we can reproduce the animal model of uh, the toxin causing Parkinson's disease. Um, both of those collectively can confirm the association or not. Um, you know, there is certainly a limitation. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think another uh, potential outcome of this kind of research is that if you can identify how these environmental uh, toxicants and pesticides and herbicides um, make the, the nerve cells sick um, and cause them to die, uh, you can design interventions to prevent that. Um, so. Um, you might uh, be able to give something post-exposure. After somebody has a known exposure, you may be able to give them a treatment that would prevent the onset of Parkinson's disease eventually. Um, or if you uh, had exposure to something like Paraquat, which uh, is believed to cause ongoing damage over years, um, if you could slow that uh, degeneration down, uh, at the earliest stages after diagnosis, you know, when, when somebody first comes to see a doctor or a neurologist, if you could keep the disease at that level um, where quality of life is still quite good, that would be second best to a, a cure, you know, um, if, if people's quality of life didn't decline significantly after diagnosis. So I think there's a lot of outcomes for studying um, environmental uh, causes of PD. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree that understanding the mechanism of injury um, certainly gives us some touch points of figuring out how to design disease-modifying treatment that slows inflammation, slows oxidative stress, which restores energy metabolism to those dopamine cells. Um, so very exciting. Okay, we've got a number of questions about um, uh, head injury um, and especially um, a potential link between multiple concussions and Parkinson's disease. Um, is there, how strong is the evidence that, that head injury contributes or can contribute to Parkinson's disease? And is there anything that could be done um, early on after that injury that could help mitigate this? And Sarisha, maybe I'll, I'll let you take that one. Um, yes, um, so that is a tough one. I do think the evidence is pretty clear that repeat head injuries 
um, can cause not just Parkinson's, but unfortunately be a risk for dementia and encephalopathy. Um, I, I think there really needs to be more investigation of what treatment we can do after concussion and after head trauma. Uh, that is an area that needs a lot more attention. Um, and I think we're getting there with the recognition that head trauma is an issue, particularly in athletics. So awareness is the first step, and we have that awareness. And now I think the next step is research where we can objectively measure how severe the head trauma is and track it will lead to a treatment intervention. But as far as I know, that's where we're at in terms of understanding how to treat it. There's also an interesting tie-in with, with uh, uh, environmental toxicants because there's a study um, from UCLA that showed that um, if, you, if you're exposed to Paraquat, for example, you have a certain degree of risk. If you're exposed to uh, head trauma, you have a certain degree of risk. But uh, if you have a head trauma, your risk uh, of um, Parkinson's after getting exposed to Paraquat is much higher. So head injury increases the sensitivity of your brain to Paraquat uh, toxicity. Sort of related to that, Tim, is there any um, evidence to show that if you have a LARC2 mutation that you're at greater risk if you're exposed to pesticides or other types of toxins? I don't know of anything that says that you're at greater risk. The, the, LARC2 is a, a gene, for, for everybody who doesn't know, uh, LARC2 is a gene uh, that when mutated uh, causes Parkinson's disease, but not everybody who has the mutation gets the disease. Uh, it has what's called reduced penetrance. So um, uh, as you get older, the, the, the penetrance increases, so your likelihood of getting PD increases with mutations. But um, it's thought that um, with LARC2 mutations, it, it may require what we call a second hit. The first hit is having the mutation. The second hit is something else. And I think it's reasonable to think that that might be environmental exposures. Um, we, we've shown uh, in our lab that even if you don't have a LARC2 mutation, when you're exposed to something like uh, rotenone, uh, an insecticide, or paraquat, an herbicide, it activates your LARC2 uh, gene uh, just the way mutations do. And so uh, LARC2 plays a role in, in how pesticides kill uh, neurons. Um, to get back to the original question, uh, does it increase your risk uh, of uh, with pesticide exposure? I, I don't think we have firm evidence, but I think there, there's reason to think it might. Okay, great. Um... Kevin, here's a question for you. With regard to influencing policy and, and change in policy to limit pesticide exposure, um, can you comment a little on why the patient voice is important in these efforts? Yes. Uh, so uh, for anyone who's ever attended the um, Parkinson's Forum, um, one of the things that we've learned is, in fact, the patient voice and, and individual patient stories really do make a difference with, with our with our legislators. Uh, and, and so, I think getting in, especially in, in an era of COVID, where maybe they're not getting a chance to meet with constituents as much, writing into your congressman and telling them your story. Can really make a profound difference. 
you know, we've seen data that shows that the individual stories may, patient stories may have actually have more influence than, than lobbyists and other forms of influence. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Um, Srisha, here, here's a question about a different type of exposure. Can high levels of stress affect the neurodegenerative process? Um, I think I don't know that we have good measures of stress um, in our research, so we don't have a lot of evidence um, that it can cause Parkinson's disease or is associated with it. Um, I understand where the question's coming from, though, because uh, we do have evidence that stress can, um, you know, upregulate cortisol, other chemicals that are good in the acute flight phase, but can be toxic to and stressful to the arteries of the heart and the brain, um, lead to cardiovascular and stroke risk. So why not, you know, Parkinson's, because Parkinson's also involves um, inflammation and uh, dopamine cells are a highly vascular system. So I don't think we have the evidence, so theoretically, I think it's, it's plausible. I think the, the okay, other maybe- aspect of, of that question is that I th- and Teresha can uh, chime in if she wants to uh, agree or disagree, but I think uh, it's not uncommon for neurologists who see Parkinson's patients to uh, have them say, well, my first symptoms began after my spouse died, right after my spouse died, or after major surgery, or some other major life stressor. And I think stress can bring out the, the symptoms um, but it doesn't necessarily cause the disease, but it, it can bring out the symptoms perhaps earlier than they would have uh, otherwise expressed themselves. Mm-hmm. I agree that I definitely observe that in my clinic, that some external stressor can bring on um, the initial symptoms of Parkinson's. But we know um, as researchers and um, physicians that the actual disease process of Parkinson's disease probably starts at least a decade or longer before the initial symptoms of Parkinson's disease manifest. Right. Good point. Um, maybe I'll ask both of you, Sarisha and Tim, this next question. Why is it difficult to infer causation from observations about exposures and risk? I think it's very important because uh, we have to, and that's the reason that we use animal studies as well as um, epidemiologic studies, because epidemiologic studies don't give us causation. It just shows, you know, higher exposures are associated with Parkinson's disease. But in order for us to fully understand the link of causation and understand uh, a treatment plan and also carry it to the next step, which is prohibiting the compound, um, we need to establish that it's causal. So uh, correlation does not suggest causation is um, a very common um, tenet of research. I guess one way of looking at it is if, for example, we know a pesticide is associated with Parkinson's disease, well, maybe it's the particular vegetable that the patient is using uh, this pesticide on that's actually the cause, not the pesticide. So, you know, a pesticide or an agent may be associated with some other third factor that is actually the cause. So you need to establish causation with another research study before assuming there's that link. Uh, I I agree completely um, that uh, association does not um, uh, mean causation, although uh, you get very close when you get to something like uh, Parkinson's disease and paraquat. 
um, the, the evidence is, is essentially overwhelming uh, in my view about uh, paraquat. But you, you, aside from the epidemiologic studies that show the association of something with disease, you need to have a biological mechanism, uh, which is what Sarisha was saying. Okay. Um, and Sarisha, another one for you. Is treatment for Parkinson's disease different if the disease is linked to um, some type of exposure, pesticide exposure, for instance? Um, I tend to assume that every patient I meet with Parkinson's disease, um, you know, if, if there's someone who was a farmer or landscaper, um, I tend to counsel that patient that perhaps their occupational exposure was a risk factor for de developing Parkinson's. But I don't attribute it to just that. I understand there may be a genetic predisposition um, and other toxicants that any given human being is exposed to all their lives. So, there's no specific treatment change I make, but I definitely try to advocate a holistic um, approach. So uh, it is good to counsel patients that if they are avid gardeners or you know using pesticides to use appropriate protective equipment, you know there is research actually that shows uh, using gloves is uh, disease modifying or more protective. I mean, um, from established or getting Parkinson's disease, and then in all of my patients, regardless of their risk factors or exposures, um, it's very important to um, embrace exercise as a way to reduce oxidative stress and promote uh, the generation of new neurons in the brain. So uh, I acknowledge the risk factor, but I can't say that it dramatically changes my treatment plan. Okay, and I think with that, we're going to need to wrap things up here. I want to thank everyone for joining the call today and being part of our community. Um, thanks especially to our panelists for sharing your time and expertise. We certainly appreciate it, and I think we all learned a lot. We'll be sending a link to the webinar on demand so you can listen again if interested or share the link as you like. We hope you found this helpful and have a great day. Thanks for listening. Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.